Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. This week, very pleased to be joined by a special co-host, the co-founder of Simple Nexus, big Florida State Seminoles uh, football fan, Ben Miller. Ben, thanks for joining us, bud. Yeah, appreciate it. You know, a big fan even still today for the Knolls struggling a little bit, but... Uh... Big one at home against the uh, the Canes this weekend. Yeah. So. They better take care of business. You can throw the records out the door, right, when you have a rival game. So get the biggest hits, big plays. It's it's always a ton of fun. Except the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. We win that game every year regardless <laughs> of what's going on. So, but, uh, <laughs> uh, so Ben, uh, man, the Simple Nexus TMC partnership, it goes back like six years. I mean, I remember talking to you and Matt. I mean – at that point, you guys were really just kind of like a mobile app for the mortgage industry company. And then you developed a great front end point of sale platform. Uh, now kind of bringing it full circle with your closing platform that uh, so many of our members are starting to adopt. And uh, is this the year of the e We've been to like, you know, like the eighth year in a row that this is going to be the year of the e close but it feels like legitimately 2022 is the year of the e-closing, you know, last year and a half, it was hard for lenders to really change anything with how busy, uncertain, yeah. and then busy the climate was. But I'm starting to hear now from our members, like, this is the time to get it done. I'm sick of talking about it. What has your experience been? Yeah, no, totally. Um, we can just jump into this right out of the gate that uh, you've always had e-close around. We know that, right? Um, and then the pandemic was a big catalyst for people to really focus in on e-close to say, how, how can we execute this? We have to do this right now. Well, the fundamentals had not changed prior to that of what the blockers were. You know, you had, you know, disparate providers of, I got to go over here for a note. This vendor over here for a vault. This person here is going to help me do a hybrid. Someone over there is going to do Ron, you know, and, and, and trying to hobble all that together. Um, was a blocker in adoption. And so even though you had the pandemic that, you know, forced people to look at it and try to cram the square peg into the round hole, so to say, you didn't get a ton of adoption. I mean, obviously it, it got more than it was, right? But it was still kind of uh, hard for people to do. Um, and that's that's what we focused on is to create an elegant solution that brings it all together under one vendor. And uh, so, coining the term homeownership platform and being able to go end to end in one login. And that's made all the difference, right? I mean, um, there are some legacy providers that are more point solution around eClose and our customers, you know, the reaction for us was like, Hey, we really want to go with you guys because, you know, our borrower can be in the same experience all the way through. And I think that's been huge. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's, it's a lot of change, you know, for a lender. And so, you know, I think I was mentioning this to you earlier at a show or something that, you know, there's also a component that we are productizing of the change management of how to adopt eClose, you know, how to sit down and say, okay, here is an elegant end-to-end -end solution, but how do we talk to our settlement agents to say, this is how we're going to do it now? And how do we talk to our loan officers and say, this is why this is important? You know, some of the, some of the biggest lift is coming from like the CFO side of the house and saying, hey, my... I can be more efficient with my warehouse line, or I don't have to, you know, pay as much carry interest or whatever, and, and I can make more money. And or the shippers saying this is a way better way to uh, ship electronic docs as opposed to paper docs and FedEx and whatnot. And but the LO may not see that. Like, well, geez, I I just want the thing to close. Like, what do I care? You know what your problems are in shipping the thing. 
but being able to coach people, lenders on how to really create that empathy across departments and help people understand why this is such a lift for different departments. And then coaching lenders through how do you talk with your investors and warehouse lines that are adopting this, trying to learn how to adopt this just like everyone else. And to say, you know, this is what this means when we have a note or an e-note or whatnot. And how do you make those calculations and say, okay, even though I have only five out of the six are going to accept it. And I don't know, you know, at the front end of the mortgage, if, uh, if it's going to be that sixth one, who's not going to take an e-note, you know, if I'm going to execute with them or not, you know, how, how do I make that decision? When should I go all in on the e-note initially or not? You know, we can walk them through that decision-making process and kind of hold their hand in, in the whole MERS process, right? Um, getting registered and whatnot. So I think those are big elements that were missing before that are here now so that 2022, right, can be that year of e-close to kind of take some of the mystery and, and friction from the process. Yeah, some of the impediments and roadblocks are starting to come down. You see it happening. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to it, though, as you mentioned, from, you know, investors, warehouse lines, how you sell it to a customer, MERS piece of it, so on and so forth. And, uh, yeah, I've heard good things about your change management services, because that's such a big part of it. Honestly, it's uh, just managing all that really is a lot for lenders to deal with. And I think that's been a big part of the roadblock to this point. But uh, yeah, from uh, your lips to God's ears, hopefully this is the year. Uh, finally, we wow. have those in the uh, mortgage industry because it, it at this point is getting kind of crazy. So, mm-hmm. Hey, but, Ben, since we're talking about simple, you know, the company itself right now, yeah. if you were a... Let's say you were a mid-sized or small consumer direct only company. What is the offering? What is what is the value add for them mm-hmm. uh, for using you? How, and how hard is it to roll out? Yeah, you know, this is this is an interesting topic um, in that we see some of the lines blurring and constantly blurring between what is consumer direct, what is distributed retail. You know, who should use what tool? You know, is this tool better for that, you know, or, or the other? So Consumer Direct, I mean, you know, they need a, a seamless, elegant, you know, point of sale experience, you know, for their borrowers coming in and, and we can provide that. But I think another element that we bring to the table is we are the leader in mobile tools for loan officers and mobile productivity. And even though you may be a Consumer Direct LO and traditionally, you know, sit maybe in a call center setting or sit at a desk all day, you know, you still have a borrower that expects almost 24-7 service, right? And so to, to be able to interact with your pipeline or do your job uh, when you're away from your desk and keep loans moving is something that Consumer Direct Shops really look to us to be able to, to deliver for their loan officers. Um, because without that, you know, it may be a Saturday afternoon and you're trying to enjoy time with your family and somebody asks for something, you're like, oh man, I have to go back to the office, you know, where my computer is and, and all the stuff laid out on the table, you know, and that was the before picture, right. And it eats up your Saturday, but the after picture is okay. Yeah, no problem. I just pull out my cell phone. You know, I have everything there. I have my pipeline there. I can, you know, do pricing or look at a credit or report, I mean, or, or send a pre-approval letter or things of that nature um, that you you hear about in distributor retail because they're always on the go, but it directly applies to that consumer direct LO as well. So I, I think, you know, that's a huge value prop, you know, that people are looking to us for. But it, it it's really interesting when I want to talk about the lines are blurring, 
you know, we, we get phone calls. They're starting to pick up now. Um, and we saw this in 18 and 19 when, when rates were going up in 18, right? We have phone calls from the consumer direct shop that says, hey, I used to be really heavy refi focused and I have to do more purchase business or, or I'm going to die, right? And they know of us as a, a very purchase centric tool because not only do we handle point of sale, but we have all of the you know, borrower nurturing you know, through co-branding with referral partners and things of that nature to allow someone to engage with you before they fill out a 1003 or, or NERLA. And so people call us and say, hey, I heard that your technology is really good for purchase business. You know, help me transition over to purchase business. And, um, and it's, it's just kind of funny because then we also hear on the other side of the fence, your distributed retail folks that are saying, wow, margins are getting compressed and LOs are expensive. Like, how do I spin up a consumer direct shop and, uh, and maybe drive some efficiencies that consumer direct has? And, uh, and so we kind of hear it, you know, the grass is greener on the other side from both sides of the fence and try to help both those parties just leverage technology to recreate themselves into a new, another, you know, a sustainable model as the ground shifts under us with rates changing. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. And uh, let's get into it. Uh, Rob, the news of the week, I think without doubt, a big inflation number uh, Tuesday morning, uh, much higher than even lofty expectations. CPI uh, was expected to be up half a percent, 0.6, up 0.9. You back out food and energy core, CPI was still up 0.6%. Uh, you know, big contributors to that gas, food, our industry, housing, a big player right now in the inflation we're seeing in the country. And uh, I saw just a couple hours ago, the monthly consumer sentiment reading uh, dropped by like six points unexpectedly. Uh, If you read inside the numbers, a lot of concern about inflation, uh, a lot of respondents saying that inflated prices are going to be affecting uh, buying decisions as they move forward. And just a lot of polls that have come out these last couple of weeks, reputable polls and pollsters, uh, you know, you boil it all down 75 to 85% of Americans dissatisfied or and or concerned uh, about prices of things right now in America, 25 to 40%, depending on the poll and the question, saying it's going to start directly impacting, uh, you know, just buying decisions, things like that. And uh, you know, how it affects our industry. Uh, we saw rates jump up a little bit. I think the 10-year spiked by, I don't know, about 20 basis points. Uh, when I Last time I checked a couple hours ago, it was at about 160. You know, the historical norm, the 30-year fixed rate should be a couple hundred basis points higher than the 10-year treasury yield. So, you know, you take out fit rampant Fed MBS buying, which is going to go away. Uh, that would put the 30-year fixed rate in a normalized climate at like 3.6 right now, very close to the Ivy Zellman, oh crap, 4% number. Uh, now, reality is because we have buying, it's worth 3.2, 3, 3 and a quarter, 3.3 3 on a 30-year fixed rate. But what level of concern do you have about this? There's, you know, the what happened in the 70s end of the spectrum where we got to this point a little bit worse what happened was employees started demanding higher wages from employers that had to acquiesce. Employers then raised the prices of goods so they could pay their higher wage demanding people. And inflation got to almost 10% in the 70s. 
uh, you know, kind of the downfall of the Jimmy Carter presidency. Um, the Fed now is still saying they believe it's transitory, uh, not concerned. Uh, where are you with uh, all this, oh, wise one? <laughs> well, you've raised a lot of topics, Rich. As always. <laughs> Good at that. So if you, I, I, I like behavioral economics. So, you know, we talked, you know, you look at Ben, you look at Amy, you look at, you know, you, you look at, you know, Tom, look at me, you know, there are certain things that we need and certain things that we don't need. And heading into the winter, obviously we need, we need heat and you need clean water and you need food. And I, I haven't checked yet. I haven't checked lately to see if the uh, cereal workers are still on strike, but they were on strike for a while. And then heading into the Christmas season here or holiday season, whatever is the politically correct term these days, you have people wanting to buy Christmas presents for their families. And last Christmas was pretty uh, not somber, but it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of celebrating going on. And I think heading into this Christmas, a lot of families had hoped for, you know, big family gatherings and big, you know, lots of presents under the tree. And so this is really hitting them hard when you combine the inflation numbers with some of the shortages that we've seen, the chip shortages that are impacting everything from phones to cars to microwave ovens and so on. It's not a good situation. And if the price goes up, on a microwave that you were going to give your spouse or your your son or daughter that just graduated from college and you want to give them a microwave, you might think twice. On the other hand, uh, you know wages, you know wages have been keeping pace to some extent. Wages have been doing okay, and you have a lot of people who've saved up a fair amount of cash throughout 2020 and into 2021. So. Inflation has definitely been a problem. We've, we've talked about it before, how, you know, you go to a restaurant and holy smokes, what did I pay for those two glasses of wine or that plate of pasta? Or you go to a movie theater or you go, uh, <laughs> oh, Howard wrote in, uh, you might think, think twice about giving your spouse a microwave. I've got some jokes uh, that I might want to throw up, put in December, <laughs> December commentaries about that. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that, that's right up there with don't, don't ask your wife what's for dinner while she's mowing the lawn. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, fact of the matter is we, we've seen these inflation numbers um, just, the, just when you go to the store and when you go to a restaurant or when you check into a hotel or book a flight somewhere. And so inflation, we knew at some point inflation was going to catch up. Now, interestingly enough, the what they call the real yield, which is the rate of inflation versus, say, the 10-year yield, has been negative for a while. 10-year down at 1.2, 1.3, If inflation is more than that, the real yield, as they say, has been negative for quite some time. Now it's even worse. And I, I don't disagree with your, your assessment, your observation that 30-year mortgage rates you know, tend to be a little hotter, uh, you know, call it 2% versus the 10-year. There's that spread there for uh, credit, credit risk and for prepayment risk. Um, so, yeah, we could, we could see rates well into the, uh, well into the threes. 
before year end. But in terms of inflation and the Fed, the the Fed has been very careful about uh, uh, discussing inflation, and they want to see a certain level of inflation. There was a targeted inflation rate for a long, long time. At this point, we're way above that. And the question is, what is the Fed going to do about it? How is it going to slam on the brakes? You know, the Fed doesn't Fed doesn't set prices. The U.S. government to a great degree, doesn't set prices in some like some kind of controlled economies around the world. And so you have a situation where, you know, gasoline prices in California, here in California, they're up near $5 a gallon for regular unleaded. All right. Like $4.80, I think, uh, uh, is what I saw this morning. $4.80 for a gallon of gasoline. Well, that has a self-breaking that self-breaking kind of thing, as I as I started off, you know, as I led off saying, well, there's some things that you need to buy: food, water, heat, electricity. There's some things that you don't need to buy. Unfortunately, for many people who are working, they need to buy gasoline, and so this is going to hit their hit their pocketbook pretty hard when they're going out and spending instead of fifty dollars for groceries, spending sixty or seventy. Instead of three dollars a gallon for gas, they're spending you know three fifty or four dollars a gas uh, a gallon for gas, and so inflation has a a breaking mechanism on the economy, which eventually, interestingly enough, tends to drive rates back down because people because things slow down if inflation gets too high. Now I haven't heard too much talk uh, too much talk about stagflation, which is a an economy in the doldrums, but inflation is going up because the economy in general is picking up some steam. You know, it's not it's not without basis that the inflation rate's going up a little bit. Housing prices are continuing to do well. Uh, car prices are are going you know on the um, uh, up up up. Now, many of these things aren't being produced to uh, uh, you know to uh, as much as we'd like, or at least the supply chain is keeping us from getting them as much as we'd like in terms of quantities. And so the, the, the real short answer that I think originators need to, to, to think about or to have is that you know consumer sentiment is down. Certainly inflation is going to weigh on consumer sentiment. You know, I think, Rich, the consumer numbers that you were talking about this morning were, was from data you know, a month or, month or two ago. I think it's not like has, that doesn't have anything to do with the CPI numbers or producer price index numbers that we saw this week. But inflation does, does keep people, you know, it, 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 is, it is a weight. It's a tax on people. And then the question is, are their wages moving up faster than inflation? You know, are we going to see workers striking like serial workers? Are we going to have, you know, uh, bank tellers making twenty-five dollars an hour, minimum wage at Amazon going up to twenty or twenty-five dollars an hour, and then you get into a situation where there's wage inflation. So yeah, as we pick up steam, <coughs> excuse me, um, we're going to see this. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how it all plays out. Uh, you can be really not that. All of Wall Street and industries like ours have not been watching these inflation numbers closely, but after this month's number, 
another month like this really would start to stoke some fears. I think even change the Federal Reserve's rhetoric and certainly investor expectations upon you know, what the Fed might do and how quickly. I think uh, right now the Fed funds future market uh, you know, has basically a priced in that the Fed's going to start raising in the summer as, you know, the expectation has been the fall of 2022, but, uh, we'll see how that all plays out. And with that rents, uh, also were sky high report that came out, uh, this week saying rents year to date are up 16.5% across America. And then Moody's came out, uh, with a statement basically saying they thought that Rents could go up by like another 10% uh, on average, just between now and the end of the year, based on some of the things that are going on in the housing market. So uh, that inventory piece, uh, such a big piece in the affordability picture. And uh, Ben, the other piece of news that uh, was really noteworthy this week is Zillow. We've been talking about Zillow on this show for the last few weeks, their failed iBuying experiment and what that means for them and for iBuying and for our industry. But uh uh, a couple senators, a couple key housing-focused senators this week uh, came out, and Zillow announced that they were going to be. And Zillow now has a ton of homes they have to offload, and uh, there was an investment firm in New York that they uh, announced uh, that they were going to be selling a couple thousand homes to. Uh, a couple senators, including one here from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, who's heavily involved with finance and housing in the Senate. We're like, uh, hold on a second, slow down. <laughs> Enough institutional ownership of homes in America. Uh, any thoughts on the whole Zillow madness of these last few weeks? You know, yeah. asking Ben or me? Uh, ben. You know, for, for me, it just first off, it, it it underscores a topic that I often repeat to people when they come to me and say, so wh- when are we going to be able to buy a house just like we buy a car today. And I go into my bank and I put in my social security number and in 30 seconds, I get a blank check from a bank that says up to $30,000, take this piece of paper, to whatever dealership you want and up to $30,000, you're ready to go. You know, like, why can't we buy a house like that? And, um, and I reference stuff like this, you know, when Fannie and Freddie back 60 to 70% of the whole market and, and the federal government is so entrenched in how housing works and it's so essential to the economic engine. I mean, they can they can go start buying 40 billion of MESs and, and change the economy. You know, it's like in, as long as they have that and you have senators calling Zillow and saying, I don't think you should sell those houses to that PE firm. I mean, housing forever is going to be a complicated and involved process, you know, at least mortgage, right? Um, and and that's it's case in point. And so, I mean, this is a private enterprise, a private entity. They have 2,000 units. When you have, what what is the, the biggest for rent player, build for rent player has like 55,000 units or something now, you know? And Zillow's looking to sell 2,000 units. I mean, it's like, if you're calling Zillow, why aren't you calling these other guys, right? You know, that are, that are bringing on 2,500 units a year um in building that are going straight into the rental inventory and then gobbling up others as fast as they can and so it's you know it's part i don't i don't know maybe it's part pr and like we're fighting for the little guy but it's a drop in the bucket if you're chasing after 2000 units but you're trying to send a message also um but it's it's really interesting that that with as long as the federal government has the reach that it does you know com, you know housing will always be 
a hard process and it's getting better. You know, technology is helping, um, but there's a new there's a new thing around every corner, it seems like. Yeah, it's you know, I think that we talked about just institutional ownership of homes and, you know, uh, P firms and investment firms buying houses and renting them and, you know, that not doing anything for the inventory problem uh, mm-hmm. that we have here in America. And you've got a presidential administration that's really fighting for affordability on a number of different fronts and more people being able to afford the uh, dream and vision of home ownership. That was really telling this week, Rob, uh, President Biden, um, who, you know, really reeling right now just in terms of approval ratings and finally got the infrastructure deal through, but just at less than a third of what it was supposed to be. And this was supposed to be like the you know, dog and pony show for the infrastructure bill. Instead, President Biden, uh, you know, partially because there was some illusions that they were caught off guard by the inflation number this week, was playing defense, really. Spent a lot of the week in appearances and visits talking about inflation, uh, talking about his administration's commitment to combating it. What can a presidential administration do to combat inflation? The Federal Reserve, in theory, works independent from the president and it's not taking direction from the president yet they're appointed by presidents. Could you shed a little light into that the whole world for us? Sure. The, the federal reserve is, is independent. However, the, the fed governors or the fed presidents are, are appointed uh, or nominated by the president confirmed by Congress. The, the, the fact of the matter is the the Federal Reserve, as they say, have said famously, that the Federal Reserve is there to take the punch bowl away when the party gets going. And they do have tools, as we've seen, that they can take their foot you know, off the gas through tapering. And it is very telling, Rich, if you look at the last Fed announcement when they announced this tapering, they only went out two months. Mm-hmm. They only have a plan for a couple months in terms of, of tapering off asset purchases. They can easily speed that up or slow it down based on economic conditions. And they said that I would be more suspicious if the Fed had come out in their announcement and said, OK, here's our exact schedule for tapering off mm-hmm. asset purchases for the next six months. That, that, that to me would be too much of a crystal ball. Uh, which the Fed will freely admit that they don't have. So, so they went out two months, and they're going to obviously constantly evaluate it. They have another meeting, uh, I think the second week of December, maybe the first week of December, second week of December, I think. So they're they're back chatting about, you know, what's going on with the economy. Obviously, this these inflation numbers would influence them, and when you talk about uh, the Federal Reserve, the makeup of the Federal Reserve with the turnover and the retirements going on. And now the financial press is calling into question whether Chairman Jerome Powell will be renominated by uh, President Biden or you know somebody else. And I, I personally don't think that, uh, I think Powell has done a very good job myself course, there's going to be people who disagree with anything anybody says at any time. If I say the sky is blue, I say, no, it's kind of gray. Well, you know, oh, well. But for the most part, Powell has done a good job. And he has his critics in Congress that are very vocal. But I think Biden will will renominate him 
and I think that he'll pass. He'll he'll go through, and the other positions will be filled. But there is this political influence on the Fed through the nomination process, and I think the Biden administration will definitely leave an imprint on the Fed based on who it nominates, whether they're dovish or hawkish and so forth. And I think there's a lot of concern right now in the financial markets and the secondary markets, investors, money managers, and so forth, about what the Federal Reserve will look like six months from now. The, uh, uh, you know, they've been very transparent, which is good. It's not the days of Paul Volcker, where you had to get out your decoder ring and try to figure out what uh, Chairman Volcker was talking about and where they were going and so forth. The Fed, they're, you know, they have officials speaking all the time about where they think things are and what they think ought to happen. And so I think when this chapter of financial history is over with, I think we'll look back on this and say the Fed did a pretty good job getting us through this pandemic. And what may have caught the Fed by surprise was you know, inflation being as strong as it was. And did they taper as quickly as they could? And you know, are they going to raise rates two or three times in 2022? At this point, you know, that's what the Fed futures market is saying you know, maybe three times next year. And that's definitely not only taking your foot off the gas, but it's putting your foot on the brake. And so I think that the Fed has demonstrated a willingness to uh, be a little bit active, not always proactive, and that's nice to see. But, you know, they have a lot of responsibility. And, and you know, a lot of times they're not working with much more data than we are. So, I think they're doing a good job, and I think I think Powell will be renominated because Biden has enough uh, issues on his plate not to deal with trying to get a new Fed chairman through. So, yeah, the inflation picture and what the Fed does with it, I think they're keeping their knees bent, and I think they may change their strategy a month or two down the road based on what we're seeing with inflation and other factors. So, I think they're they're doing a good job. This is The Rundown with Robin Rich. I'm Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative, joined as always by Rob Crisman. And this week, special guest co-host, the co-founder of Simple Nexus, Ben Miller. And Ben, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier in the program, because it is something I'm hearing from all of our members. And it is uh, that retail, primarily retail mortgage originators seem to be very focused on either growing or developing direct-to-consumer channels so they could pay their people less. Uh, you know, in theory, you have some technology and leads do the work and you're paying salespeople 25 to 50 basis points instead of 100 to 125. Uh, but then also the flip, flip the flip side, our members that are highly consumer direct, you know, seeing a, a market with less refi, to be sure, uh, more purchase business, wanting to uh, you know, if it's marketing services agreements or uh, traditional distributed retail to develop retail channels uh, to get closer to the realtors, the referral sources, and in theory, the purchase market. And I think that's where you were kind of going at the beginning of the show is that you're seeing the same trends as well. And uh, uh, yeah, just if you could expound on that, because uh, it, it's an interesting dynamic that we're seeing as well within our network. Yeah, you know, one thing that comes to mind that I didn't mention before is this this really showcases the beauty of the independent mortgage banker, uh, the ability to pivot 
on demand, so to say, um, this is a cyclical business and the ground shifts under you and you got to be ready to change and adapt uh, to continue to be successful in what it, whichever rate environment might be or whatever is going on with the economy. And this is a perfect example of that. You know, you might have entities that uh, were able to be built for taking advantage of a 60 or 70% refi type split. And, uh, and now that's changed drastically and going to continue to change, you know, drastically looking the forward looking is maybe a 25% split and refi to purchase. Right. And so if you were very, very heavy focused in refi, you have to recreate who you are and how you do business. But, but the fascinating element is, you know, a, a consumer direct shop is trying to come closer to what is a, what, what are some best practices of distributed retail or how do I get more purchase business? And then distributed retail is how do I, look more like a consumer direct. And, and it, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, trying to control the variables you can control and take advantage of, you know, technology or efficiencies where you can to continue being profitable, continue being a going concern. And that's where I talk about sometimes the lines are blurring between the two, because, you know, we sometimes have this image of, you know, your traditional distributed retail, as a, as a pencil and paper type, I'm going to go out in the community and take a loan app and, and then go punch it in afterward or whatever into the LOS, but spend all that face time with the consumer and consumer direct is this faceless, you know, nameless, you know, thing that you interact with mostly a website and you don't talk to a person hardly at all. And your loan just pops out on the other side. Right. Well, the reality is those are growing closer and closer to each other because they're leveraging technology to create the best experience, whatever it may be. If you're a, a call center or maybe a lot of FIs, you know, you have a bank or credit union that traditionally you have a stationary, somebody in and a central building that's working and you know, that may not be out and about as much in the community. Um, but that is shifting toward more of how do I behave more like a distributed retail type, you know, company and then distributed retail as well. I'm, I'm getting killed by these expenses. The cost of loan just keeps going up and up and up. And now that margins are compressing, it was all great when I was making $5,000 a loan, but the traditional $500 loan, you know, spread, I've got to do something different, you know, as we revert back to that mean, you know? And so they say, okay, how do I look at, and, and that's one of the things with eClose. How do I look at eClose not only as a better experience for the borrower, you know, that will create more referrals or things of that nature, but I'm going to make money because I'm going to touch this. I'm going to have fewer touches in manufacturing this product and shipping this product than I had before, right? I'm going to be more efficient in my warehouse line. And, and you know, the look, making those types of decisions, you know, how do I be more efficient in getting a lead in and in what way does it convert, you know, to have the fewer touches or fewer, you know, interactions, less expense, and, um, and, and those are forced upon you because if you don't change, you'll die, right? You'll, you'll have to sell, get bought up, caught up in some M&A or just go out of business. Um, but that's the nature of the IMB. You know, let's, let's find out what we have to do to, to keep, keep making it work. Yeah. One of many things I love about this role with TMC is just getting to interact with leaders, uh, people that run mortgage companies and mortgage operations across America. And, you know, these last seven years I've been in this role, we've been through a lot of different cycles. It's the winter of 18 to last fall, right? The complete two op opposite ends of the spectrum and seeing companies that 
are able to grow and thrive and uh, continue to profit and do well in all different kinds of climates. And to me, the, the, the number one thing is always just leadership, like companies with great leaders that have vision and don't get stuck in the moment and get stuck in the pipeline and can lead with vision and kind of go where the puck's going as opposed to where the puck is and communicate well. That, that's the biggest thing I've seen just as a predictor of success. But another huge predictor is diversity in your business model. Um, and having levers you can turn on and off and hedges. And uh, Rob, one of the one of the things we've seen also is just servicing, right? These last year and a half, all this 30-year fixed rate stuff in the twos. Um, I, the, some of the smartest people I know in our network in the industry, um, you know, had maybe servicing on hold or were just, but when things really started to pop last summer, you know, started to strategically put more servicing on the books, um, and, you know, we've seen now a lot of those lenders sell those MSRs at nice premiums. And it's a great hedge, right, to your mortgage business, because, you know, if rates do go up to 4% um, and, you know, your volume drops off and your fee income on originations drops off, all that stuff in the twos, the weighted average life on that stuff extends, you get more value on it. Um, what? So my question for you is, in this opposite cycle, let's say 30-year fixed rates jump into the high threes, like a lot of economists are predicting last year, how you may see mortgage lenders look at their servicing strategies as we approach and, and get into that type of climate. Well, you summed it up. The, the duration of the servicing, existing servicing that's on companies' books, whether it's Mr. Cooper or the, you know, Rich and, and Rob you know, company with 50 million of servicing, the duration extends, the value goes up. You, you mentioned it, that's an, it's, an, it's a hedge. It's a very imperfect hedge. <clears throat> when you talk to servicing experts about can companies really bank on the value of their servicing on their balance sheet, you know, offsetting the drop in volume. And it's nice to have a nice balance sheet but that doesn't pay the rent. And so the, the, and the cash flow does cover that to some extent. But yeah, it's nice to have servicing. That said, and you, you brought it up, last year in 2020, we saw a large number of companies when the value of servicing went to zero and, and aggregators just weren't paying for it. Companies held onto it. And they enlisted the help of, of a myriad of subservicers that are that are out there and are still out there. But now, with the belt tightening that's going on, we're seeing those same companies say, "Well, you know what? We knew we kept the servicing for a reason. It was worth zero then. It's worth you know point now, maybe even more, based on the coupon. And so let's sell it. And we're going to use that money to help fund our operations." And the question is, are they using it to fund their, their month in and month out operations because they're, they're inefficient? Or are they using it to, you know, what are they doing with the money? Mm -hmm. are, they, are they going to buy more service? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things going on out there. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good time to own servicing, probably a good time to sell servicing, especially if it's got a low coupon. Um, and if you're a small company and you need money to make, you know, make your payroll, then yeah, sell servicing. And I see I'm seeing a lot of servicing trade right now. So and that's that's exactly the reason because companies, smaller companies need the money. 
Absolutely. Uh, just a few minutes left in the program. Some other things of note that uh, popped up in the news this week. Delinquency rates in general down almost 300 basis points from this time last year. Kind of giving credence to Rob, but we suspected that all these loans coming out of forbearance, a lot of these people were able to pay and they were just taking the, the vacation. Uh, Fannie and Freddie, 5.3 billion with a B in the adverse market fee collection. I, uh, you know, again, there's costs associated with the forbearance programs and all that, but I just thought that was a large number. Um, and uh, regulators <clears throat> with a pretty uh, strongly toned wording to mortgage servicers, I think pretty clear that the new regulatory community is going to have zero tolerance whatsoever uh, with any type of mistreatment of borrowers that may have some problems paying or need help. Um, so if you're a servicer, uh, you know, another thing to consider as people think about their servicing strategy going forward, you get in these democratic CFPB environments, it's more costly to service because of just the compliance related aspects of it as well. So any thoughts on any of that noise? Yeah, I'll sum up the regulatory environment in uh, one minute, Rob. Um, I, uh, I, I spent a fair amount of time with Mitch Kiter. Uh, in fact, I saw him last night. And he is full of dire predictions uh, mm. about the, the CFPB and fair lending and redlining and uh, enforcement actions, creating the rules rather than the rules, creating the enforcement actions. So, you know, Rich, I, hats off to you. You've been saying for quite a while that we are going to see a changed regulatory environment, and we're seeing it. And uh, I think if companies don't have a beefed up compliance department, uh, they definitely should. But we can talk about that next Friday. I know we're out of time. My left tackle analogy, right? Your head of compliance is your, your left tackle. Protect the quarterback's blind yeah. side. And, uh, uh, ben, uh, any pl- we know you're going to be watching Florida State, Miami, Florida this weekend. But uh, any, uh, any good plans out in uh, Utah this weekend? The jello capital of the world. Uh, those that maybe were a couple minutes late logging on. Uh, most per capita jello consumption in America and Utah, according to Rob Crisman. So. Well, um, yeah, I got to try to catch a game. Going to probably have it recorded and watch it when it's more convenient. And because uh, we... Uh, one of my hobbies is work, just enjoy what we do. And and it's kind of funny. Uh, it makes me think about when you're talking about earlier managing costs and with servicing and whatnot, you know, if you're supplementing your income right now, because you think that this may be cyclical and things are going to get back to the two and three and $5,000 heyday, you know, you're kidding yourself. And it's, uh, it's, there's got to be, I think a Warren Buffett quote out there somewhere. It says when the tide goes out, you can see who was swimming, you know, without the trunks on. And so, you know, this is going to expose a lot of companies that aren't taking the the measures now to right the ship, you know, and, and, you know, become more efficient and fix, fix their operations. But uh, yeah, just enjoying some beautiful weather before it gets terribly cold out in Utah being a Florida transplant. Um, yeah, I know, I know it's going to turn cold every year and, uh, and, and that's tough, but at least, at least Utah also has the greatest snow on earth to go along with all the jello we eat. So. <laughs> Rob, your Golden State, you mentioned last Friday you were, you know, excited to watch the Warriors game Friday night. Your Warriors are off to a hell of a start. My Cavs actually are off to a surprising good start as well. But uh, you, who are you uh, dunking on this weekend? What, what am I doing? I'm, I'm going to bake a couple pumpkin pies and go play tennis with a buddy here right after this call. <laughs> a, a wholesome, uh, good old American uh, weekend. So there you go. 
Um, to our attendees, thank you, as always, for joining us uh, every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, the rundown with Rob and Rich, taking the weekend, uh, some lighthearted looks at uh, all the craziness going on in our crazy industry and uh, continue to be here uh, every Friday at 3. And uh, many thanks to our special co-host this week, uh, co-founder of Simple Nexus, great, great company. Uh, and, you know, I say it all the time. Special place in my heart for people and companies that believed in TMC when we were nothing. And Simple Nexus goes back about as far as anybody. So appreciate you guys. And it has been just awesome watching you guys just explode these last five, six years. And uh, to your point, I think people want to consolidate vendors. Like you got, there's a lot of vendors that you need. And you guys, I think, have done a great job continuing to bring new excellent solutions to market and uh, get more and more people on your platform so thank you ben no, right. thank you guys yes, thank hanging you. out with you awesome great weekend beautiful all right until next week have a great weekend everyone we'll see you next friday at 3 p.m eastern take care see ya for more information about how you can get involved with tmc connect and witness the power of the network firsthand please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com